Hello and welcome to Jetavanarama Buddhist Monastery. Number 22 is the 22nd episode of this series of Dhamma Talks. Feels like a long time ago we started this, this journey together. 22 whole episodes, including this one, you will have completed. As you move forward on this quest to find a way in which you can enrich your lives, to find happiness, right from the start through to the end, our goal will be unitary. At no point will we sway from that path. At no point will we aim for a different objective. It is always happiness. Hence, these talks are titled The Buddha's Guide to Happiness. Now, at this point, I kind of feel that there may be some among you, perhaps who may those of you who may not have listened to our talks before we started this series, or maybe those who might have jumped on the bus, so to speak, on the last one or two episodes, I feel that some of you might be thinking to yourselves that when the Bhante explains that wanting seems to be the problem in our lives, expectation he proposes is a synonym for that. So, are you expecting, Venerable Sir, for us to live without expectation? What sort of life would that be? Wouldn't it be quite dull, boring, melancholous? It wouldn't be full of spirit, full of energy and vibrancy. Is that a sort of life that the Buddha taught? Is that the sort of life that he lived? So what is his legacy then? When he founded the Buddhist philosophy and he proclaimed it, starting with his very first talk or sermon to the five ascetics. There are lots of Buddhists in the world today, in the millions, I'm sure. Are they all living a life of mediocrity? Is there no vibrancy in their life? Are they so dull? Because all our lives, we've always come to know that to live a full life, you need to be full of hope and ambition, expectation, things to look forward to. And then in these talks, the ideas that you share with us seem to be, on the contrary, completely goes against the ideas and beliefs that we thought were true. So what sort of livelihood would that be, Bhante? if we were to accept as true what you share with us today. So if you've come to that point in your mental dialogue, in your mental debate, trying to analyze these two, trying to weigh up the pros and cons that are being offered to you, which side should I take, which card should I play, which cam should I count myself in henceforth, I encourage you to continue to remain open-minded and also to continue to do that one thing I've always been asking you to do right from the start because without that critical and key component, none of this would make any sense. For Buddhist philosophy to make sense, there has to be one thing that we all must do. Without that, this would be a failure. Without that, this would simply be an academic, 
a very dry, a very philosophical study of something. But instead, we are talking about happiness. This is something that affects all of us. This is something that we all need in our lives. It's what we do everything for. And happiness is a very practical, a very emotional, a very sincere experience. You felt it, I've felt it, we've all felt it, it's what we all yearn for. It's a very practical thing, isn't it? Happiness is not a theory, it's a practice. So, what is that one thing that I've always been asking from you, right from the start? And that is to apply these principles in the lab of your life. It is then and only then will these things start to make sense to you. And would you prefer any other way? Would you prefer for me to ask of you to just take any of this just because I say so or because it appears in certain texts or because someone else said so and it was the Buddha and we must all respect him? Are you willing to join that school? Take that class? I doubt it. Because I think of you as free thinkers. I like to think that way. Just as I am. I was, I am, and I always will be. I'm a free thinker. I like to keep my options open. I like to make sure that I'm well informed. And I have all my choices laid up in front of me. So, in that vein, I encourage you to continue to provoke, to prod, to ponder about these ideas, these ideas that I share with you, ideas worth thinking about, worth considering, worth pondering. Because I promise you, they will have truly transformational impact on your lives if they haven't already. I can make such bold claims because I myself have gone through that experience and I'm doing all this only because I want to share it with you. Most of you don't even know where I live. Most of you and I will never meet. Certainly not in this lifetime. So the only reason I share this with you is because I want to give this to you, what others in their good heart, in their kind heart, shared with me. Because we all understand that sharing is caring and that is what we're doing here. So, lots of questions remain. Each and every one of them warrants an answer. And all I ask of you is to hold tight Stay with me, and those questions will be answered. Before we do so, let's take a moment to pay homage to the Enlightened One, the Perfect One, the Magnificent One, the Fully Awakened One, the Supreme Buddha. Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhassa Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhassa Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhassa I admit that by now some of the things that we talk about may have you slightly confused slightly confounded. Some of these ideas might sound absurd. And that's all right. That's quite all right. You know, this is like breaking the sound barrier. You know, it's, it's on another level. It's groundbreaking. It's transformational. It's a paradigm shift in the way we have always looked at life. So, I would be a fool to accept 
that these ideas will start to make sense in all hearts and minds in the first listen. I don't expect that. Instead, all I ask and all I anticipate is that as you continue to remain with these talks and give yourself the opportunity to analyze and apply them into your lives, they will start to make sense. Now, let's take last week for instance. I ended the talk, I think towards right at the end, I proposed this idea to you that would it be possible that you could not want the things you need? Does that even make sense? Needs are things that the body needs. Wants are things that the mind wants. Take about rest, for instance. You need rest. One might say, what? well, doesn't the mind need rest? Depending on which school of thought you subscribe to, you may get a different idea there. Think about this for a second. When you are working on something, right? Think about a time when you felt you're exhausted and you needed a rest. So what you're saying is my mind needs a rest, okay? Now, it's pretty obvious that the body needs a rest. I have no qualms about that. Even I take a rest from time to time. And sleep is possibly the best way of resting the body. But when we're tired, we get some rest. What about the mind? Does the mind need rest from labor? People will probably tell you that. And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people believe that to be true. Let's say you've been working through some sums. When you think the mind needs rest, what do you do? You've been working hard on math, working, trying to work out a sum, right, for say a couple of hours now, and it's giving you a headache. What do you need to do now? What do you do with your mind? To take a rest, what do you normally do? You might go and watch TV, for instance. Listen to some music. Take a walk. Walk the dog. Wash your car. Have a beer. Sing a song. Go and tend to the garden. Be with your kids. Call a friend. Go to the concert. Oh, climb up onto the roof and gaze at the stars. Now, my point is this. When you do all of these things, what is your mind doing right now? Is it not doing anything? Have you switched off your mind because the mind needs a rest? So you are working through your math, physics, whatever, some really tough calculations to get through. And now you feel like you need a rest. So the mind you feel is exhausted. What do you do? All you do really is you shift the activity. No? Some of the things I just called out there are some of the things that you would normally do to take a rest. And I'm not talking about resting the body. I'm talking about mental rest. Some of you might like to cook something or maybe read a book. But what do you do when you do that? Again, your mind is at work, except it's only a different activity. So is the mind really resting? Let's take a a real life example, and this might make more sense to you. Let's take your car, for instance. Every so many miles, it is normally good practice to give the engine some rest, isn't it? So if you're driving somewhere, you're going on a long journey, 
you might stop somewhere. As you take a loo break, you give your car a rest. The engine needs a rest, you'll say. Now, when you do that, the engine has stopped, hasn't it? The car is stationary. So, to give it rest, you stop it. How do you give your mind a rest? Do you stop it? <laughs> you only switch the activity. Would you ever, let's say you were driving from London to Manchester and you wanted to give your car a rest, what do you do? You take a detour and now you start driving towards Southampton or Newcastle. Complete change in direction because you just, you know, you just need to change the road. Or if you're on the M1, you change direction. Now you're on the M11. Does that give your car rest? Is the engine now rested simply because you've shifted the road? It's now being driven on a different road? Is that resting the car? No, you understand this. To rest it, you've got to stop it. So while it's in motion, you understand that it is not rested. In physics, you learn about this. A body at rest doesn't mean a body or an object, you know, something that was in motion in one direction is now moving in another direction and now you can say it's at rest. You wouldn't say that. But we seem to think that mentally when we want to take a rest, it's simply sufficient to change the activity. What am I getting at here? Some among you may have gathered by now that what I'm getting at is that I'm suggesting to truly rest the mind, or what you've got to do is you've got to go to a side, sit down and shut down. Just don't think about anything. Think about nothing. Stop your thoughts. Don't think about anything. And that is rest. You might think that that is what I'm about to suggest. Actually, no. That's what I say. Quite a lot of these ideas will be fundamentally different and at odds with some of the ideas that we will have picked up in school, at university, at the workplace, having read books on the internet, in the encyclopedia. They'll be at odds because here we're talking about the Buddha's guide. In the Buddha's guide, he takes a completely and an entirely different approach to that which has always been taken on the quest to people seeking happiness. So what does the mind need to do when it needs a rest? Is it to stop doing everything and just shut down, close your eyes, close your ears, listen to some music as some might suggest? Relaxing music, you do that, don't you? Relaxing music, if you get yourself on YouTube, there are lots of that. So when you're, when you're tired, studying, or working, what do you do? You put on some relaxing music, suggesting that to relax, the mind needs to switch activity. But you don't do that with any other thing in life, including your body, your car, your bike, your legs. Any other thing, absolutely any other thing, your washing machine, your hua, your computer. When you want to give it a rest, you, you stop using it. You put it to a side. So what, I'm, what might I be getting at? How do you rest the mind? Well, to rest the mind, you need to understand what is the mind laboring for. You know, the mind does not find it painful or laborious or exhausting just to be functioning. It does not. Because that is what the mind is supposed to do. Even in your sleep, I mean, how, do you, how is it you have dreams in your sleep? Does the mind come to a stop, a complete halt? No. So right from the moment you were born to the moment you die, 
what happens after that bhante? Uh, let's not go there yet. I promise you, that will come sometime in the future. So from birth to death, this mind functions non-stop. Incessantly, it keeps on running. So is there nothing you can do to rest it? The thing is this. It depends on what you mean by rest. What you mean by rest depends on what you mean by hard work, painful work, labor. Extortion, exhaustion. Because whatever you mean by that, the opposite of that is rest. You must agree that resting the mind does not, you have to agree, you have to admit to this now, does not mean you switch off the mind and absolutely don't think about anything. Because you can't really not think about anything, can you? Can you? Can you not think about anything? Because when you're not thinking about anything, you're thinking about the fact that you're not thinking about anything. That's the way it works. No? All right. I challenge you. Try and not think about anything. Do it for a minute. I dare you. For that minute, when you're not thinking about anything, what you're thinking about is that you're not thinking about anything. So that is not rest, because still the mind is thinking. So therefore we need to come to this, we need to clarify this, that hard work and labor and toiling and this exhaustion of the mind is not because it simply functions. Merely functioning, it does without any bother. It does not tire out. It does not exhaust. But whenever the mind wants something, now that is a completely different ballgame. Whenever the mind wants something, the mind has to strive for that. The mind has to labor. The mind engages in nitrous mode. It goes into hyperactive mode because it wants to try and achieve that. When you take a break from that, from wanting that, or you shift your focus from wanting that to something else, that's when you feel you're taking a break. Let's take a really Common example, you're working through some math. Teacher's given you several problems to work through. So as you work through the sums, you begin to realize that they're not as easy as you thought they were. But you don't give up, you just carry on working through them, making mistakes and checking the answers right at the back of the book and they just don't agree, they don't tally, so you have to start again. And now you're really starting to pull your hair out, you're getting frustrated, annoyed with yourself, right? All of this, why? Because you want to do the sum correctly. You don't want just, just to work through the sum, you want to do it correctly. I mean, otherwise you could just absolutely, you know, draw smiley faces on it, right? And that would still work if you just wanted to do something. No, you want to get to the right answer. Back of the book, they have the answers. So as you scan through the answers, and then you come back to the question, and then you look at the answers that you've gotten for yourself, they don't add up, they don't tally, doesn't make sense. So now you're getting frustrated. Why? Because you want to get the right answer. It's not working through the sums that is painful, that is exhausting. No. Because if you didn't work through the sums, you'd be watching TV. 
What do you do when you watch TV? Light enters your eyes, triggers the cells in the, on your retina, the cones and the rods. That excites the nerves. Optic nerve takes over from there, carries a signal across to your brain. And then through some amazing activity, we might come to that at some point in the future, your mind picks up that the eye has seen something. So this is getting a little bit deep, but it's all right. I'm sure this will make sense to all of you. Because we need to now start making more sense of wanting and why, as a phenomenon, this is the problem. So we really need to unravel this and get to the bottom of this. So we need to cut it and slice it and dice it, right? And, you know, chop it, do whatever we need to do to really appreciate and comprehend that wanting is the problem here. Because it is. You're not trying to fool yourself. It is. We're just taking our time to get it straight in our minds or in our heads. So when you're looking at something, as light enters your eye, and it, the signal goes to your brain, and then the mind picks up that you're seeing something, it has to interpret what you're looking at. Is it a coconut tree? Is it a mountain? Is it the ocean? Is it the moon? Is it mother? What are you looking at? What do you see? The mind has to interpret this. Because surely the eye doesn't understand all of this. The rods and cones on your retina, doesn't, they don't pick up objects. By objects, I mean, you know, it's not the eye that understands what you're looking at. The eye is merely a transformer. What does it do? It transforms light energy to electrical energy. That's what the eye does. Isn't it? It's a transformer or a converter. It converts light energy to electrical energy. Electrical energy because that's how it is relayed through your optic nerve to your brain. So it's simply a converter. So it's the mind which begins to, having received that impulse or that impression from the brain, now starts to make sense of what it's looking at. So the world that you see through your eyes, the mind has to draw on the inside. And that is what you see. That's why you can look at someone and say, that's my mother, whereas someone else will go, Actually, that's my daughter. The eye sees the same sight. You can capture that onto a photograph. It'll look the same. It'll look exactly the same to two people. One will go, that's my mother. The other will go, she's my daughter. Another will go, she's my wife. And yet another will go, she's my best friend. So this interpretation of that which has been seen, cannot happen in the eye. How do we know this? Well, you see, if it were possible that we could chop the eye off and swap it with one another, you'd still feel the same about the person you're looking at. Or if you were given an artificial eye, let's imagine there were an artificial eye, you would still feel the same way about the person you're looking at. So really, what that proves to us is that there's, a, there's an interpretation of what you're seeing and that must be, that cannot be a physical activity or a chemical activity or a biological activity of the eye alone. And it's not just the brain either. Or it's not just a combination of the eye and the brain. 
the mind has a role to play here. To further prove this point, you feel emotions. That's not the brain. This is the mind at play. And that's why you can feel different emotions on different days. The physical brain stays the same. It's no different. There could be chemical changes in the brain, but the mind has a role to play here. So the mind is, which is, is that which interprets what the eye sees. Now, why am I talking about all this with you? Well, we were talking about this because what you did to take a break from working through the sums was watch a film, watch television. What is the mind doing now? Previously, it was interpreting what it was looking, what it was seeing through the eyes at some numbers and trying to work that out, trying to interpret those numbers and what needs to happen for them to give the same result as the ones in the back of the book. And what is the mind doing now? Well, right now, what the mind is doing is interpreting signals that it receives from the brain, which in turn received from the eye of the things that the eye sees on the television, and it's making sense of all of that. You know, how is it that you can watch a movie right from the start to the end and then be able to relate that story to somebody? How can you do that? Is that the, is that the brain? Is that the eye that gives you the ability to do that? Because the eye only sees what it sees at that point in time. The brain only receives signals of that which is being seen from the eye at that point in time. But then how can you watch a three-hour film and then relate that story to someone else? That is the mind at play. So then the mind, of course, as you watch a film, has to do a lot of work there. It has to interpret what it's seeing. It has to remember stuff. It has to join bits and pieces from different parts of the, parts of the film. You know, really, it's doing the job of an editor, isn't it? It's doing the job of a, a director, isn't it? It's even joined, doing the job of a critic, isn't it? So it's playing multiple roles. Previously, it was only working through some sums. And now? Because, you know, at the end of the film, you'll even go, that was a good movie. Or you might go, that was a flop. What the heck was that? A complete disaster of a movie that was. Why did I waste my time? I could have just been doing the sums. So, you see, really, the mind, as you watch a movie, is doing possibly tons more work than it did when you were just working through those sums. And to make matters worse, you don't have an instrument which the mind uses, or which, is, which would be available to the mind to determine whether the person you're looking at is beautiful, is ugly, whether you don't like the person or you like the person, you like the character, or whether the actor or the actress fits the role they're playing. You know, you become a critic as you watch a movie, don't you? We're all like that. You don't have an instrument that helps you do that. The mind has to do all this on its own. But what about when you're working through some sums? If you can't remember what 4 times 4 is, you just need to punch it in a calculator. And it's going to give you the answer. So, honestly, which one seems to be the harder role for the mind to do? Which one's the harder job? Working through the sums or watching a movie? But when you've had a long day, you've, got, you've, you've been doing your sums, you've been doing your homework, right? And you want to take a break, what do you do? You go and sit in front of the TV to watch a movie. And you tell yourself, ah, finally, I can now relax. To add to all that, you also got your feet up on the table and you've got a bucket full of popcorn. So what does the mind have to do with that? Well, you need to be able to tell that it's popcorn, don't you? 
How do you know it's popcorn? You're shoving into your mouth. Isn't that the mind interpreting signals it receives from the tongue and the nose? It has to make sure that, it, that, it, that not all those signals get jumbled up together. So when it receives an impulse or an impression from the brain, it needs to know that this is to do with the, the eye, this is to do with the nose, this is to do with the tongue, this is to do with the body, this is to do with the ears, because of course you've got to listen to the dialogues. You know, in the film, there are spe people speaking. If it's an action movie, you've got the music, you've got the, the weapons firing. You've got the action going on and the emotional music. All of that has to be interpreted as well. So are you telling me you're taking a break? Watching a movie? You were taking a break 10 minutes ago when you were working through Euclidean geometry. Now you've got a ton more stuff to do. But you don't feel that that's exhausting, do you? Why is that? <laughs> what do you think? Well, I have to present to you the truth. One you like to do, one you want to do, the other you don't really like to do and you don't want to do it. That which you like to do, that which you want to do, you feel is very relaxing, very rewarding, very thrilling, very enjoyable, fun, very desirable. But the one that you don't want to do, the one that you don't like to do, the one that you have no desire of doing, the one that you will be happy to see the end of, that is exhausting, tiring, bothering, annoying, frustrating. <laughs> no? But think about how people give themselves a break. You know, the body, I absolutely agree with what you do to give yourself, give your body a break. What do you do? You put your feet up on the, on, the, on the coffee table even. And, you know, that's it. You're relaxed. Yeah, I get that completely. Get yourself a massage. Yeah, I get that. Have a hot chocolate. Yeah, fine. I get that too. Get yourself a warm drink, right? Maybe you're cold. If you're feeling really cold, you know, sit by the heater and, you know, you feel relaxed. Yeah, I get that. Go and get, your, you know, dip yourself in the water, take a bath. Or if nothing works, go and get some sleep. I get that. Because that makes sense. The body was worked, labor. These bones, the muscles, you know, they were turning and twisting and doing all sorts of things. Jumping around, walking about. That's hard work. And when you stop all that, you give yourself rest. But what about the mind? Have you ever, to give your mind a break, stopped using it? No, I'm not saying times when you feel like you've made a, a really dumb decision about something. We've all had those times in our lives. And you ask yourself, did I not even use my mind at that point in time? I'm not talking about that. I'm saying quite literally, when you feel like, felt exhausted, when you felt burdened, did you actually switch off your mind and not think about anything? Is that even possible? Given that when you're not thinking about anything, you're thinking about the fact that you're not thinking about anything. So you're still thinking about something. 
Think about nothing for a second. Go on then. See, you still have to do something, right? I'll give you a minute to think about some think about nothing. At the end of that minute, you gotta come back. So when you think about nothing, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about nothing. You're thinking about nothing. So you're still thinking. Means the mind's at work. So never in your life really have you ever given the mind a break. Not that kind of break. What I'm trying to prove to you here, folks, you know, this is not just a, a technical academic discussion or a debate. I'm trying to prove a point here. If you want to give yourselves a break, if you want to give your, give your minds a rest, understand what it means to give the mind a break. Understand what it means to give the mind a rest. Because what you're doing right now is not achieving that, does not give you that rest, that well-desired and well-deserved break and a rest, because you haven't worked it out yet. You haven't worked out exactly what it is to give your mind a break. That's because you haven't worked out exactly what it means for the mind to be hard at work. It's not seeing something that toils the mind. It's not working through the math. It's not balancing the, balancing the chemical equations that toils the mind. It's not trying to find a solution to global problems, be that poverty or the pandemic or climate change. You know, it's not thinking about those things that taxes the mind. No, it's not. Because that the mind is simply in some kind of activity. If you were to stop doing that, the mind is doing something else. So the mind is always doing something. So if the mind is always doing something, the only choice you have is what that something is. Not whether the mind is doing something or not doing anything. You don't have that choice. Even when you're asleep, the mind is still working. What that proves to us, what that should tell us, is then toiling of the mind is not merely using the mind to get things done, to think about things. So it's not reading the newspaper, it's not reading a book, it's not going to work, it's not washing the car, it's not doing, going through the sums. It's not balancing your accounts at the end of the month. It's not trying to plan to, uh, you know, make coming up a bit with a business plan. It's not writing up a thesis or a project proposal or to plan, you know, what you're going to be doing as the president of the country for the next 10 years of your tenure. These are not the things that taxes the mind. These are not the things that tax the mind. No. What taxes the mind is wanting. Because when you want whatever it is you're doing and you have an expected outcome, you have an expectation of that outcome. And if the mind really desires that, the mind wants nothing but that, now it has to work through every obstacle, every challenge, to get there, but not only that. Now, every time the mind is working to that goal, it's in a state of fear. Why fear? Because you never know. You never know what can come and throw you off the track. What can come and stumble you? What can come and hold you in your tracks? What can come and throw you out? What can be the obstacles and the challenges? And you want a plain sailing journey to your destination. Someone else might come and take away what it is that you want. 
Someone else might come and have it for themselves. Someone might come and steal it. Someone might come and take it rightly because it de- because they deserve it, but you feel you deserve it just the same. Think of a, a promotion at the workplace. Maybe you've made a job application somewhere, and now you've got competition because there'll be other people who'll want that job. And now you're in fear. You know, think about that feeling when you go for an interview. If you, I'm sure you've experienced that, that nervousness, right? Sweaty palms, you, go, you know what I'm talking about? Butterflies in your stomach. Or when you get on stage, if you're not familiar with public speaking, right? After a while you get used to it. But, you know, you stand on stage and mic in hand and you see an audience. You've got to talk to them, engage them. You know that feeling? Where did that all come from? That is fear, right? We call it stage fright. Why fear? Fear of what? Think about this. As I say, you know, apply this into the lab of your life. Think about the last time you were on stage and you had to give a performance. A song or a dance or narrate a story. So give some kind of performance. A welcome speech. You experience that stage fright? Why the stage fright? Is it because you're on a stage? That's why they call it stage fright? Get off the stage and now try talking and see if that goes away? No, clearly not. There's an audience and now you have to present. What's working in your mind? What if I get this wrong? Why does that bother you? What if they don't like my performance? Wait, why does that bother you? What if it turns out to be a complete flop and I forget the lines? Hang on, why does that bother you? Why does that bother you? What if I, what if I get really nervous and I faint? Alright, why does it bother you? What if I don't get the job? Why does that bother you? What if she says no? Again, why does that bother you? It bothers you because in each of those situations, there's something you want, isn't there? You want her to say yes. You want them to give you the job. You want the audience to like your performance. You want them to give you a standing ovation. You want to win the first prize. You want that cup, you want the medal, you want the certificate. You want to get through the audition. You want to pass to the next round. You want to hit the home run. No? Take away all those wantings. If you could truly say, you know what, Swaminans, got that. You know what, I don't care whether she says yes or she says no. I'm just going to go and ask her. That is, you know, if you've ever said that, you're just lying through your teeth. No? I'll prove it to you. Why are you asking her then? If it matters not what she has to say, why ask? Because whether she says yes or she says no, it makes absolutely no difference to you. Why ask then? You can simply assume, right? If she said yes, you do exactly what you would if she'd said no. In which case, why do you ask? You only ask a question because you want the answer. So you want the answer, meaning there's an answer that you want. There's an answer that you prefer. You have a preference. You have a liking. You have something you want. Take away wanting from each of those situations. Getting up on stage. Going for that interview. 
asking someone out, right? making that offer. Say you want to buy a house and you, you think so many times before you make an offer. Why? Because you want to make a good impression, right? What if the offer is too low? Then they might be disappointed with your offer and they might think you're not taking them seriously enough and they might reject it and not even be interested in taking another offer. Or maybe your offer might come too low. But what if you make an offer that is too high? You might not be able to back out. You might not be able to negotiate a better deal. Again, it's fear. Why fear though? Fear is always based in wanting. So that's fear. Then there's another part. There's another reason why the mind can never rest. And that is loss or grief. The grief that comes with loss. Think about times when you've been in a terrible mood. Really sad and disappointed. Did you feel that you were giving yourself a rest? Was the mind at rest? I mean, that goes without saying. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Times of grief are, you know, these are not moments that you want back in your life. Those are the moments that you wish you never happened and you wish you'd never need to remember again. Think about a very grieving moment in your life, something that brought you a terrible amount of grief. Even the thought of it, just juggling your memory, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a happy feeling. You don't like it. You don't want it. And just thinking about it stresses you out again. It's painful. And again, you feel, oh, I was doing so well. I was doing just fine. I was, I was you know, have, having, having a really happy time, a really good time. And then he had to come and ask me about my late mother or my grandmother or my husband who left me or my son who I lost two years ago. And then from that point forward, you know, it was, I, was, I was just not myself anymore. It was a real downer from that point on. You might have heard yourself saying, or at least thinking inwardly. That was a time when you lost your cool. Again, why was that a problem? What is grief based in? I asked you this last week. Why are you not grieving the loss of so many hundreds of thousands of millions of people who die every year around the globe? But if something were to happen to one of your loved ones, you'll talk about that for years to come. I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, but all I'm saying is, it's wanting that brings grief. So it's wanting that brings fear. And it's wanting that brings grief. When fear and grief haunt the mind, when they hijack the mind, the mind is exhausted. The mind is toiled. The mind is worked hard. The mind loses its cool. It is no longer relaxed. It is no longer free. It goes into tension mode. It's stressed out. You get a mental strain. And that's when you feel, I need to take a break. I'm exhausted. But without you knowing the science behind this, without you knowing that this is wanting that's causing all of this, you'll think to yourself that it's the activity that's stressing you out. And it's not. 
So it's not working through the math. It's not doing the sums. It's not coming up with problems to tackle global problems or problems at the, at the workplace or at home that causes you to stress out. So too much work can obviously tire you out physically, but work does not tire you out mentally. Because if you didn't do, do that work, you'd be doing something else. You've never not worked mentally. The mind has always worked. Whether it's eating or sleeping or drinking or going places or watching the TV, listening to some music, talking to a friend, playing chess, playing cricket, golfing, swimming, gliding, you name it. Whatever you do, the mind is at work. Only the difference is there are some things you like doing, other things you don't like doing. Things you like doing are the things you want to do. Things you don't like doing are the things you don't want to do. Whenever the mind has to do something it doesn't want to do, that's when the mind gets stressed out. So when you're at the workplace and you go, oh gosh, I'm so stressed. Or you're, you know, it's at uni. Maybe you've got your final year exams coming up and you go, I'm so stressed. It's just so much work. Uh-uh. Not true. Not true. Or say you're a, you're a minister. Either at the church or you're a minister of the country. And you go, gosh, all this work that I have to get through, so much to do. And it's stressing me out. Not true. It's not the work that stresses you out. It's fear and grief that stresses you out. Fear, because you're fearful that you might not be able to get what you want. Grief, it's when you've lost what you wanted. And you feel that you've lost all hope. It's not possible to get it back again. Doesn't stop you trying again, but you know that time I lost it. And then again the mind is stressed, strained, tensed. So you see... How is it then that Buddhist philosophy teaches one to do a trillion things, a gazillion things and still be cool-headed? I'm trying to show you how you can do 10 times, 20 times, 50 times, 100 times what you're doing right now, folks, and you can be as cool as a cucumber. Because it's not the work that stresses you out. It's not the quantity or the amount or the variety of the work that stresses you out. You could be doing so much more than what you're doing right now if only you were able to rid the mind of wanting. You could do so much more for your family. You could do so much more at the workplace and get through all those promotions in, in, in as many years as it has taken you to get to where you are today. Or even in half the time, in a third of the time, whatever promotions you've had up until now at, at your workplace and it's taken you X amount of time, in a third of the time, in a quarter of the time, you could climb up as many number of promotions. If you start to figure out and start to work through the real problem here, it's not the quantity of the work. It's not your scope. It's not the number of lives that you have to be responsible for. It's not the amount of the work. It's not the workload that stresses you out. Let's get this straight right, folks. It's such a shame that we human beings who have so much capacity to do so much good to the world and everyone who lives in it, and every life and, and transform those lives in very meaningful and positive ways. It's such a shame that we've missed the point when it comes to what is it that stresses us out. It's not the hard work. It's not the labor. It's not the quantity. It's not the amount. It's just one thing. 
and that is when you want something and you want it when you want something bad you're always fearful that you might not be able to get it that stresses you out no end when you want something and in the the, the chance that you lose it the event that you lose it again that stresses you out it could even break your heart some people can go crazy and even end up end up in the mental asylum all this because of one thing because people haven't figured out that it's wanting that brings suffering that is why two and a half millennia ago the great master he made this fantastic discovery and he said the first noble truth of suffering is wanting now i want you to pardon pun i want you to take that information that you've taken from us from this talk today whatever you've learned from me from this talk today take it and apply it into the lab of your life I've given you some examples but the examples that will really make sense to you will be the examples from your own life. Discuss this among friends, with your family, with your children. Ask around and you'll soon start to figure out. It will really make sense to you. Actually, you know, it is wanting that has brought me suffering all this time. So it's not the work. It's not the studies. it's not the exams none of them it's wanting if you can read the mind of wanting you'll be free from all that heartache all that stress and strain oh thankfully we know what causes wanting that is what the buddha laid out as the second noble truth i'll meet you with that next week before we conclude then let's take a moment to transfer the merits we have all acquired to be grateful and thankful to all those who've taken all that effort all that hard work to bring this teaching to us over two and a half millennia from the first moment that the buddha taught this many people have committed and dedicated their lives just as you receive from me today i have received from someone else and they from someone else and so on so let us take a moment to transfer these merits to that lineage of noble friends who have been there to help and guide us and to achieve the fulfillment that we've sought in our lives let us take a moment then to transfer the merits that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the noble triple gem chanting period listening to the dhamma and engaging in various meritorious deeds today first and foremost let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the lord buddha's teaching and with immense gratitude let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis upasakas and upasikas who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the no- of the buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the tripitaka which is thankfully available to us today to study understand and comprehend the dhamma Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters, who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also transfer merits to our teachers and all other monks resident at this monastery, as well as all the anagarikas and anagarikas attached to the monastery. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these sermons, sharing them out with others, or inviting others to join them. And may, through the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plane, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plane. May, through the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also transfer the merits we have acquired to our devotees. friends of the monastery who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the mahasangha this includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery to those of you who provide the mahasangha with shelter arms robes and medicines 
as well as those of you who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well wishes. May through the power of these merits they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons, daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, and employers and employees, and to all those who have helped us and have supported us, and assisted us in any way, shape or form. And by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to the devas, brahmas, spirits and demons, and primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect the, and fulfill the Sambhuta Sasana. Let us also transfer merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may to the power of these merits they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer to our ancestors who have predeceased us, to all those who have been our families and friends, acquaintances in this infinitely long journey in Sansara, and those who have helped and supported us and assisted us in every way, shape or form they could. Let us also transfer to the members of the armed forces, as well as the police force who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nations, and may all those who have lost their lives in the war be their friend or foe, rejoice in the merits that we have acquired today. Let us also transfer to all those who have lost their lives in natural calamities, such as tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides and pandemics, including the most recent and prevailing one, and reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been our friends and family to, this, to us in this long journey in Sansara. Let us take a moment to transfer merits to them, and may, by the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain, may they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, let us all resolve that may, through the power and blessings of all the merits we have all acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land. And finally, may through the power of all the mates we have acquired today, you and I, and everyone who's helped make this program a success, become an arahat unvahanse, an arahat mehaninvahanse, in this very life itself, and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And on that note, we will conclude today's talk. Looking forward to speaking with you again next week. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all.